Hello, this is Ghostthropology. Hello and welcome to Pages and Popcorn Podcast. Hello and welcome to Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. We talk about the changes, the themes, what's going on in both of them, and uh, which one's worth your time. Maybe both, maybe neither. That's Pages and Popcorn Podcast. That's where you are today. Also welcome to Ghostthropology, where I examine ghost folklore and other supernatural lore and look at how it interacts with the modern world and our perceptions of how we live. Today, Matthew and I will be discussing The Exorcist. The Exorcist, which was a 1971 horror novel by American writer William Peter Blatty. The book details the demonic possession of 11-year-old Regan McNeil, the daughter of a famous actress, and the two priests who attempt to exorcise the demon. The novel was inspired by a 1949 case of demonic possession and exorcism that Blatty heard about while he was a student in the class of 1950 at Georgetown University. As a result, the novel takes place in Washington, D.C., near the campus of Georgetown University. And that is also why Matt from the Ghostthropology podcast is here with us. Not only was the novel inspired by that 1949 case, which Matthew will talk about more in a minute, but then the novel went on to inspire the 1973 American supernatural horror film directed by William Friedkin, written for the screen by William Peter Blatty, based on that novel. The movie stars Ellen Bernstein, Max von Sydow, Lee J. Cobb, Kitty Wynn, Jack McGowan in his final role, Jason Miller, and Linda Blair. It follows the demonic possession of a young girl and her mother's attempt to rescue her through an exorcism conducted by a pair of Catholic priests. So, as we do here on Pages and Popcorn Podcast, I'm going to recap the book and movie. And as Matthew does on Ghostthropology, he is going to talk to us about the original story that inspired the book, that then inspired the movie. In these crossover episodes, I provide a description of the true or allegedly true story upon which the book and the film that we are going to discuss was based. I will do that in this case, but I'm not going to go heavily in depth, both because William Blatty, who wrote both the novel and the screenplay for The Exorcist, was quite open that he wrote fiction inspired by an event, in contrast to the authors of both The Mothman Prophecy and The Amityville Horror, who claimed they were writing factual accounts. And also because, unlike the previous stories we've covered in our Halloween crossovers, the story that inspired this film is actually less well-known and less influential on modern folklore than the film and the book. In fact, it's reached the point where aspects of the film are often incorporated into people's tellings of the story that inspired it, rather than the other way around. But here we go. Now, keep in mind, there are multiple books, articles, papers, and documentaries that cover this subject. While many of them are sensationalistic, in fact, I'd go so far as to say most are sensationalistic, even those that aren't tend to contradict each other. To make matters more difficult, the primary document that describes what happened, often called the priest's diary or the exorcist diary, kept by one of the Catholic priests involved, 
and it's not clear which one, by necessity contains a lot of hearsay and third-person descriptions, as the priest who kept the diary was a latecomer to events. And as this story didn't become widely circulated until after the film The Exorcist became well-known, many details of popular tellings have been changed to conform with the film or with the novel upon which the film was based. So I'm going to get some things wrong here because everybody gets some things wrong here, even the most well-researched of the retellings. Okay. 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 (laughs) In early 1949, in an unincorporated Maryland suburb often referred to as Cottage Town or Cottage City, then 14-year-old Ronald Hunkeler lived with his parents and his grandmother and his Aunt Matilda, or Tilly, named Harriet in some sources. His mother and grandmother were devout Lutherans and quite strict in their religious observance, but Tilly was either an active spiritualist or at least interested in spiritualist teachings, depending on which author you believe. Tilly taught Ronald how to use a Ouija board as well as some other channeling methods that were common in spiritualist circles, and this displeased both his mother and his grandmother who wanted him to stay on the Lutheran straight and narrow. Ronald began to exhibit strange behavior and seemed to be the center of some odd psychokinetic happenings, which included the movement of objects and strange scratching and knocking noises coming from the walls. This behavior increased after his aunt died of multiple sclerosis. Initially, the family thought that he was simply acting up, responding to the death of an aunt to whom he was very close. But as things persisted, they sought medical and psychiatric help. The doctors all confirmed that Ronald was in good shape and perfectly healthy. There didn't seem to be a medical explanation for what was happening. His family then went to their pastor, Reverend Schultz, who observed Ronald in the Hunkler home and then had Ronald stay in Reverend Schultz's own home. And in both locations, he observed that while Ronald seemed fine during the day, at night his bed moved, including when the bed wasn't actually a bed, but rather a pallet of blankets on the floor. Reverend Schultz recommended that the family contact the Catholic Church to speak about an exorcism, but also recommended further medical and psychiatric help. Schultz also contacted parapsychologist J.B. Rhine, who appears to have visited the Hunklers, but didn't observe anything when he visited. The local Catholic diocese did send a priest, Edward Hughes, who spoke with the family and provided tools, including holy water and religious materials, that he thought would calm whatever troubled the boy. None of this worked. According to some tellings, Father Hughes attempted to perform an exorcism, during which Ronald spoke in Latin, informing the priest that he was the devil himself. Father Hughes stopped the ritual when Ronald broke a bedspring loose and attacked the priest with it, severely cutting him. However, there's some evidence that this first exorcism attempt never occurred, and that the priest said that the boy simply repeated Latin phrases that the priest had spoken, rather than claiming to be Satan. Shortly after this, Ronald would begin speaking in strange, guttural voices, and scratched words began to appear on the boy's body, one of which was Lewis, which the family took as a sign that they should go to St. Louis, where the majority of the extended family lived. They asked Ronald if he wanted to be enrolled in school while they were in St. Louis, and it is said that the words, no school, then appeared scratched on his skin. Throughout this time, Ronald had times when he seemed to be in the grip of some demonic entity, but other times when he was fine. The entity seemed to exert its influence primarily at night, but even at that, there were many essentially normal nights and a few unusual days. 
While in St. Louis, the Hunklers stayed with family, and Ronald was with them part of the time, but he was also moved to hospitals, a church's rectory, and other homes. A priest, Father William Boderm, agreed to perform the exorcism ritual, and performed it many times over the course of several months. During the rituals, the boy would spit at the priest as well as those who were there to hold Ronald down, howled like an animal, injured several people who were present through his constant thrashing movements, and spoke in a strange demonic voice. At one point, the priest felt that the ritual was more likely to succeed if Ronald was baptized as a Catholic. His uncle and father drove him to the church, and during the drive, Ronald attacked the driver and, in the demonic voice, cursed at his father for trying to have him baptized. They managed to get him to the church, and while the baptism was difficult, with Ronald or the demon protesting the entire time, it was finally done. Despite this effort, the exorcisms continued for several months, with the demon at one point declaring that it would only leave if a specific word was spoken, but that it would never allow Ronald to speak that word. Ronald continued to be moved between locations as the ordeal ran on, but finally, one night, at the Alexian Brothers Hospital in South St. Louis, it worked. The exorcism was still a tremendous ordeal, with Ronald thrashing, spitting, biting, and the demonic voice amped up considerably. An attending priest in training named Hallerhan even had his nose broken by Ronald. The bed levitated and slammed down again, and the demon continued to mock the priest until, suddenly, Ronald began speaking with a different voice that announced itself as the Archangel Michael. It instructed the demon to leave and then loudly said the word, Dominus. And with that, Ronald began to fall to the bed and announced, he's leaving, apparently meaning the demon. From that day forward, Ronald led a fairly normal life. There are, of course, numerous stories, both good and bad, about what happened to him. The truth, though, is that he lived a long life, dying at the age of 85 in 2020. Now, this is just a thumbnail sketch of the much larger story. For anyone who would like to know more, we will link to sites and podcasts that will provide you with more information, or in some cases, misinformation, but that will provide you bibliographies that you can use to read further. I especially recommend the Stuff You Missed in History class episode that will be linked as a starting point. So that is the story that inspired The Exorcist. It was covered in small articles in a few newspapers in both uh, St. Louis, Maryland, and the Washington, D.C. area. And apparently, William Peter Blatty found out about it because of a short article in the school newsletter when he was a student at Georgetown. And of course, the film The Exorcist has its own ghost story, supernatural legend built up around it. But I think we'll hold on for that. So that was the story. And then like the, the quote unquote, the true story behind the book. So here's the recap of both book and movie. Because the movie stuck so closely to the book, I'm really only going to do one recap. Also, this is a crossover episode and we don't want to be here for hours and hours. And there's a lot to say about this book and movie and true story. So I'm going to do one recap and then we're going to talk about the things that were left out of the movie and added into the movie and the book, etc. But the rough bare bones of the story is as follows. There's this elderly Jesuit priest named Father Marin, and he's on an archaeological dig in northern Iraq. They're studying ancient relics. There's a small statue of the demon Pazuzu, which is an actual Assyrian demon kind of thing, and we'll talk about that in a minute. 
so anyways, Father Marin is kind of freaked out and he thinks that there's like pending disaster, some kind of powerful evil. It's unknown to the reader at this point, but Father Marin has battled this demon before in an exorcism in Africa. So that's kind of his background. Meanwhile, in Georgetown, a young girl named Regan is living with her famous mother, actress Chris McNeil. And they're in Georgetown because Chris is making a movie next door at this Jesuit type college place. Chris is finishing up her work on the film. There's uh, the director is this guy named Denning. He is this loudmouth, boorish, alcoholic dipshit. Chris is a divorced woman raising Reagan on her own. It, there's a conflicting whether or not she's fully divorced or just separated, but there's there's no dad in the in the picture. So, anyways, Reagan begins to become inexplicably ill. There's a gradual series of poltergeist disturbances in their home. At first, Chris attempts to find rational explanations, like maybe there's rats and maybe somebody's, you know, playing tricks. But then Reagan begins to rapidly undergo disturbing psychological and physical changes as well. She's having trouble eating and sleeping. She's withdrawn. She's frenetic and she's increasingly aggressive and kind of violent. So originally, Chris thinks that Reagan's behavior is the result of repressed anger over the parents' divorce, the absent father, like she's acting out. Coupled with these events, by the way, are disturbances in the local Holy Trinity Church, which is being desecrated on several occasions, potentially linked to something called a Black Mass, and it's causing local concerns about occult activity. So anyways, Chris Chris has taken Reagan to a bunch of psychiatric and medical treatments. At first, they're like, oh, it's all medical. It's all medical. And then they can't find anything medically wrong with her. And they're like, maybe it is psychiatric. But Regan's mom, Chris, she's an atheist. And eventually, she is pointed towards the local Jesuit priest to help her. And because nothing else is, is basically working. The director of Chris's film, uh, that guy Dennings that I told you about, he is found dead near the house, and it looks like whoever killed him might have been, well, all the signs kind of point to Reagan, so Chris gets really nervous. The doctor still can't find a source, so now enter Father Damien Karras, who's currently going through both a crisis of faith and a lot of guilt because of the recent loss of his own mother, who died recently in New York. He agrees to see Reagan as a psychiatrist because he is a psychiatrist who's there, you know, being a counselor to all the other priests. He initially resists the notion that it's an actual demonic possession. He points to advances in science, which he thinks can explain previously assumed to be possession. He's like, no, no, it's all science. You know, telepathy is real and you know all this stuff. It's, it's just science. But after a few more meetings with the child who's now completely inhabited by this diabolical personality who's claiming to be the devil, he decides that he is going to ask the bishop for permission to perform an exorcism. He doesn't really buy it, but he thinks it might you know, power of suggestion might actually work on Reagan. And the bishop's like, okay, but not Karis, because maybe he knows that Karis has some crisis of faith, but also he's not as experienced. So he's like, oh, hey, look, Marin's back from Iraq. He's the perfect one to do this because he's done this before. So Karis is going to be the assistant and the two show up to do this exorcism. Okay. So as they're doing the exorcism, it's it's all bad and scary, pea soup, et cetera. And then Merrim suffers a heart attack. We had known before that he had cardiac arrhythmia, so it's not a complete, you know, shock, but there he is. He's dead. And now Father Karras is trying to finish the exorcism himself. Eventually he demands that the demonic spirit inhabit him instead of the innocent Reagan. And the demon does. He leaves Reagan. He enters into Karras, and then Karras throws himself out the same window that Dennings was thrown out of and 
dies on the street. But as he's receiving last rites, it's implied that, well, he his crisis of faith is over and he can die knowing that he has saved Regan from this evil demon. I left a lot out, including a couple of side plots, and I know we're going to talk about them. And I also left out some of the more graphic, disturbing imagery from the book and the movie, but I know that we will talk about them too. So before we really get into book and movie and original story, were you familiar with the Exorcist original story book or movie before we decided to do this episode matthew i i'd never seen the film or read the book but it's one of those things where references to it are just so common that it's impossible not to know something about it yes years ago probably 15 years ago i read the book because it is such a classic well-known book and uh, i decided to read it no interest in seeing the movie at the time but I wanted to read the book. I read the book, didn't like it, and got rid of it, which is a big deal because I normally don't get rid of books. As you know, is the person who has had to buy me multiple bookcases over the years. But this book I got rid of, and I was real mad about it later when we decided to do this, and I had to rebuy this book <laughs> so that so we could for, do it for the podcast. For listeners, when she says the guy who's had to buy her multiple bookcases, I've learned woodworking specifically <laughs> to make her more bookcases at this point. That's how deep her addiction is. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. But it's all good. And now I and now I don't ever want to hear about it. If I'm like, I don't know if I want to get rid of these books. Nobody gets to say boo about it because you never know when in 15 years you're going to wish you still had that book. And specifically this book, because the version that I read 15 years ago had been published before the 2011 40th anniversary reprint. And as of today... In the year of our freaking Lord 2022, it is almost impossible to get that original version. Libraries don't seem to have it. People don't seem to have it. You can't really get it off of Amazon. Even if you're trying to buy used copies, it, there's no guarantee that it's actually the 1971 version. I had to use this open source library, like online database thing. I had to find. It took a lot. Eventually, I found a friend from the buffering the vampire slayer community that i'm in for in england uh, who had a copy of the 1971 version and she was able to take some snapshots of the pages because here's the thing the book made me really mad about the ending now it's not a change of plot okay the same basic thing happens in the book the 1971 version the 2011 version the same basic thing ha happens in the movie which was, it came out in 1973. And then the remastered director's cut that came out later. All four of them have the same basic plot points, right? There's the exorcism is happening. The old priest dies. Karis is like, come into me. The demon goes into him. He goes out the window. That's all the same. But there are some fundamental differences, okay? In the original book, Karis is yelling at the demon, come into me, come into me. And then the point of view of the author shifts and we're downstairs with Chris and Sharon having a drink and they hear a noise and they hear Karis saying, I won't let you hurt them. And then they hear a noise and then they go upstairs and he's already out the window. In the 2011 version, we actually get to see the fight. There's a whole new paragraph that explains the fight. It has Karis's body being thrown up and the whole thing. And he doesn't yell, 
I won't let you hurt them. But we do see the actual battle of the demon and the priest. And I remember when I read the original, I was so mad that we didn't get to see that. We heard him say, come into me, and then he dies. That, that was it. And it felt so anticlimactic and frustrating. So then what's interesting is when they made the movie, they have him yelling, you know, come into me, come into me. And we do see him, like his struggle, like the, the demon face on his face, like the whole thing. But we also, in the later version of the director's cut of the movie, which is the version that Matthew and I watched, he beats the little girl. Like he starts wailing on her, which is not in the original and not in either version of the book. So like, these are like, changes but people because the movie was so close to the book in a lot of the other big beats i think people just assumed that that was part of the book but it wasn't the original version of the book we didn't actually get to see the battle between the two and i think that that makes a big difference so, so. my my understanding is that the changes that were made to the book and also some of the changes that were edited into the film apparently a lot of people took Karis dying at the end of the story as satan winning mm -hmm. and both laddie and freaking wanted to make it clear that no satan didn't win karis died because he realized that that was how he could defeat satan right but see in the movie we don't see karis's face he's like dead on the ground and the yeah. other priest shows up and gives him last rites and so you're just like oh crap in the book it makes a point of like, like saying that his eyes had this look. He was able to squeeze back yeah. to, the, to the priest. He accepted last rites. He basically, you know, asked forgiveness for his sin. By the way, suicide is a sin you're not supposed to be able to get forgiven for. So I don't know. That's a little murky, but whatever. Anyways, and then and then he dies, but he is at peace. And the other big change is in the original version of the movie. A, there's a couple changes at the very very end, which is Father Dreyer. The, another priest comes to visit Chris and Regan as they're leaving. Chris gives Father Dreyer this, this medallion and then they drive away. That was the original ending. And people were like, oh yeah, like she's rejecting the church. She's rejecting the faith. Also, he's just standing there sad and looking at these stairs where people died. And that's the end. And you could totally see that ending and go, okay, like evil is out there. When they redid the ending, they have her, she gives the, the priest the medallion. He hands it back to her and says, no, no, you better keep this. She nods, she takes it, and then they drive away. And then that priest goes off and makes friends with this detective. And they have this whole Casablanca ending. And you're like, oh, they're friends. Because I didn't mention it in the recap, but like this police detective had made friends with Karis before Karis died. And now the police detective has a new friend with this new priest. And so it's a much more hopeful ending in terms of the, the detective and the priest. And it's a much more hopeful ending with Chris is now taking that medallion as if she's now accepted that faith is important and like she, you know, like these symbols matter. And it's a it's a change in her character arc of being this atheist who does or does not believe. So there's a pretty big fundamental changes, you know, in those two versions of the film. Right. They certainly um, changed the themes yeah. uh, in some ways. Yeah. So. You know, and I just want to say Father Dyer was one of my favorite characters in the book. He is a deadpan, snarky priest. Every time he shows up, he's entertaining. Uh, in the movie, he's a person who exists. Yeah, and in the movie, he is played by a man who's actually a priest, and this was his only acting credit. Oh, so interesting thing about that. I read a uh, op-ed written by that priest 
who apparently he had met William Peter Blatty before the film The Exorcist was made, but after the after the book was published. And he commented to Blatty that he felt like the Jesuits in the book spoke in a manner that he described as cutesy flip. <laughs> and Blatty said, that's just the way that the Jesuit teachers that I had at Georgetown spoke. And so he cast this priest in the film, but also said, by the way, your character's name is Father Cutesy Flip, <laughs> which it was, was in fact dire. dire. Yeah. Interesting. The, the casting of the movie was kind of interesting. A lot of inexperienced uh, actors and people who didn't do too terribly much afterwards too. Anyways, let's, let's go back to some of the other more noticeable, perhaps changes from the book and the movie. So in the book and the movie, there's also these, uh, there's a bunch of side characters I didn't even mention because they don't, they don't matter overly much. One of them matters, but a lot of them don't. Yeah. Chris has some servants. She's got Carl and Willie. Willie is a woman. They are this married couple, they're Swiss and they basically are her servants. And there's like this whole tangent story part of the book where maybe Carl was the guy who killed the director, you know, the, the awful Dennings director guy, because Dennings was awful to Carl and called him a Nazi and was just mean and abusive all the time. Okay, great. Except that I'm really glad they like left that out of the movie because it didn't serve anything. The, the reader knows that there's going to be an exorcism. The book is called the exorcist so we know that there's some kind of demony thing at least we were pretty sure and so we were pretty sure that carl didn't kill anybody like that doesn't make sense with the book so it just seemed like a lot of running around with no purpose yeah i think in the book it was there to develop the theme of for lack of a better way of putting it the fallen world because in the book there's a whole subplot where his wife thinks that their daughter is dead but carl knows she isn't because carl's been bringing her money but she's a heroin addict and it doesn't serve the greater narrative but it does develop the idea that you know the world is a wicked place with a lot of bad things so it kind of adds to the atmosphere of dread but it doesn't advance the book. yeah it definitely goes along with the whole i think one of the main themes and we'll touch on this i think in a minute is the breakdown of the family unit as like the main bad here you know and a lot mm -hmm. of the problems that ensue the possession and the murder and all of these things come about because you know these people in the 70s you know it's a, they, the 60s were a rip-roaring time and now you've got women who aren't married and you know raising children on their own and you know all of the, whatever and all of this stuff so i think that there's like a breakdown of the nuclear family threat going on and people are people are atheists oh my god oh no well and also there is this constant talk of you know satanists and satanic cults and have you heard of this is this something that could be happening we'll get into it in more detail but this book was so very 70s yeah. in that there was a lot of moral panic elements mm -hmm. in it that would really come to fruition with the satanic panic in the 80s, but were definitely starting to boil in the late 60s and were really rising to the surface in the 70s. Yeah, indeed. Another character that is left out of the, well, it's not left out in the movie, but another character who's de rightly diminished in the movie is the detective. And that is it's kind of a, a mixed bag. In the book, he had, he had a lot to do about trying to solve this murder. In the movie, we didn't have as much of him, but we didn't need as much of him because, again, the murder was a little non-consequential as much in the movie. The murder was a lot more important, I felt to me, in the book. 
but he definitely has this like rumpled overcoat kind of like oh I'm so sorry you must be so busy maybe I could ask you a question but oh no no you're so busy but maybe I could just ask you this one more question and there is actually a little this is a fun trivia thing there was this perception that maybe Columbo you know, had been inspired by him or he had inspired Columbo and it was kind of going back and forth. An actual thing is that uh, the pilot for Columbo predates this book um, and the movie, even though the pilot didn't air until later. So people saw the pilot for Columbo and were like, oh my God, it's that same, that same basic character type. I'd wondered about yeah. that because as I was reading the book, I'm like, is this the prototype for Columbo? Because he's just kind of like, he's clearly got a plan. Right. But he seems like he's bumbling. Right. This this copper guy, this detective, he definitely has a yen for uh, seeing the movies and hanging out with priests, which gets dropped a little bit in the movie. And a lot of what he had to do in the book was less in the movie because I mentioned in the description, there are these desecrations that are happening at the at the nearby churches. And in the movie, there's only one. And we literally mm. could get almost two minutes of some random priest coming into a building and putting flowers down and then noticing the horrible thing that's been done to the Virgin Mary. Like it's it's very drawn out. But in the book, there's a lot of desecrations. There's like feces and there's there's blood and there's phallic things and there's I mean like a lot of desecrations are happening at the church and there's an art project that Riggins working on and there's paint flakes that match the statues that have been desecrated so in the book it's we know that Regan has been under the power of this demon or whatever has been going and doing these desecrations even though that plot thread kind of gets dropped about halfway through the desecrations are happening but then once Regan gets tied to her bed they're not happening anymore but nobody really does anything with them except to say well maybe the person doing the desecrations was also maybe the person who killed the detective you know the director but maybe not it's very confusing but in the movie they really downplay those connections and we only have one desecration so there's just less for the detective to do so we had a lot less of the detective in the movie one of the things that really struck me as we were watching the movie and you commented on this actually is it seemed like a lot of the connective tissue that held events together in the novel just simply wasn't there in the movie for example we see reagan undergoing testing before we see any reason for her to undergo it in the film. Whereas in the book, there's a whole series of events that leads to her undergoing the testing. There's like one moment where she's like, she climbs into bed with her mom. And the next time we see her, she's at the doctor's and Chris is telling us that she's been acting out and bad things have been happening, but we didn't actually see it. So it just right. feels very jarring. It's sometimes the editing was very disjointed and and that connective tissue, like I didn't see anything about scenes being left on the cutting room floor that would explain what you just talked about. And we did watch the director's cut, but there was a scene that, you know, that whole conversation that Karis and Marin have on the stairs during the exorcism where Karis is basically like, why is this happening? And Marin's like, this demonic possession is not really about the person being possessed. It's about us. This is the devil's way of testing us and telling us that we're not worthy of being loved. And that whole speech was like missing in an earlier version. And so like that completely changes the whole theme of the movie too, because mm -hmm. we're talking about faith and, and stuff. And it, it just, if it's not there, it's not there. It's just, it made it much more ambiguous ambiguous and i feel like people give the, the original version of this movie and 
you know, this director's cut a lot of latitude because of the things that the movie did great which was like they had a good sense of atmosphere they had some really creepy effects it was really trailblazing for its time in term of horribleness and effectiveness and grossness and disgusting and like all of those bad things this movie you know set the stage and i i know that that's something that you're going to talk about with in terms of folklore like the images of this movie have so much permeated into our culture and it was so unique and and like i said before trailblazing in terms of horror movies that i think people forget that it there's there's some actual issues with the pacing and the plot but we're all distracted by the visuals you know and those moments of you know your mother in hell and all of that kind of stuff that is very memorable and there goes our clean rating oh sorry my podcast is rated explicit so <laughs> i'm trying really hard not to curse because i know this is a crossover episode and i don't think your podcast is rated explicit but um anyways <laughs> so there are a lot of things that the movie does well i'm not a big horror fan i'm not somebody who dislikes horror it's just that it's a genre that i'm kind of lukewarm on at best most of the time but i did like the fact that while some of the connective tissue is missing they did include stuff that a lot of horror films don't you know you actually see reagan and chris interacting as a family mm -hmm. which a lot of films will just basically say well they're the parent they're the child therefore of course do the math audience mm -hmm. but i think that a lot of what happened to reagan was more effective because we did see that yeah um whereas if we'd just been implied i don't know that it would have hit as hard but you know another thing i find myself wondering about when we we're watching it is i remember years ago reading a book that was adapted into a film i'd seen the film first i loved the film and then I read the book and then I went back and watched the film and I was like, wait, how the hell was I able to follow this when they left out all of these things that explain why this happens? And then I saw the film again some years later, having forgotten about a lot of that, and I could follow the film without a problem. So I do wonder if part of the reason why we noticed that was because we had just read the book. And if we hadn't read the book, we would have been able to just fill in the gaps and not even been aware that there were any gaps. Well, I think there's a certain level of suspension of disbelief too you're like okay i'm here for the ride and also let's not forget the previews for this said it was going to be scary we know that there's some kind of demonic possession happening again it is called the exorcist and yet it takes so long but i had you time stamp it and then i, I didn't write it down it was like an hour and 40 minutes into this movie before like they actually say the word exorcist like it is a very long drawn out so I feel like people were like come on come on get to the crazy part and like those crazy parts are what people watch it over and over again for you know to you know the the, the tantalizing horrifying things of what's happening to this girl but I don't think any of that works without what came earlier you know Okay, so yes, I agree that a lot of the stuff worked better because of what came before. However, I will say that I still think that what like keeps people coming back is the drama of basically what the exorcist is because when people talk about the exorcist unless you're probably us you're probably not going to be like oh yeah there was this really cool part where for 10 minutes at the beginning of the movie we were in North, you know iraq looking at old you know ruins and stuff but a couple other little changes that were made that i want to touch on real fast and i i think that it kind of goes to show what i think the movie did well and did maybe better than the book in some ways is a little change the movie takes place around halloween the book takes place in the spring not a big change but 
it adds to like the spooky, you know, idea of it because Halloween is spooky. Also, they put the sound of bees in early scenes when nothing scary was actually happening because the sounds of bees make most people uncomfortable. So there was subliminal you know, audio clues that clued us in that we were supposed to feel uneasy, even when nothing bad was actually happening. So that's, you know, those are probably pretty good too. Mm -hmm. And then of course we had the demon face, which depending again on which version of the movie, you're going to see more or fewer demon faces. You caught the demon face on the, the, thing in the stove the reflective hood of this of the stove which was in some versions but not in others but they put this demon face in 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 several shots and they took it out damien father karras he has a dream and the demon face is there in the in the book in the 2011 version of the book i should be very clear to say there's a whole other dream sequence where this other priest shows up in damien's room and talks to him and freaks him out and then he wakes up and the guy was never there but was he was it really the demon visiting him in his dream and that that scene that entire scene is not in the original 1971 version of this book so i you know i personally think that if you're an artist and you write a book and you publish it you should not get to go back and change things in your book you can say i've grown and changed if i was going to write it now i would write it differently but I really don't like this whole idea of going back and rewriting. I I just, I find it tacky and, and frustrating, especially when you make big changes and, and then it's frustrating when you can't actually go and look at the original version. It just bothers me. So anyways, yes, this whole new dream sequence that gets added in, in 2011, that thankfully was not in the movie at all. I already talked about beating the child and the, the, the Casablanca sort of ending um, and seeing Damien's face when he dies so one thing that we talked about we try so hard to not talk about this book and movie before recording today but it was very hard but um one thing that we did talk about was how the the death of father Karras was foreshadowed in the book and I think the book did a better job of foreshadowing his death than the movie did. But the book also spent so much time explaining and over-explaining and explaining and over-explaining things that I feel like you could get very much lost in the weeds, especially since the book takes, you know, almost 75% of the book is is over before we even get to the exorcism itself as well. It's, it's a lot of yeah. lead up. A lot of lead up. The, the, the film is not about the exorcism. The exorcism is the climax of the film. And it's also the climax of the book. But it's not what the book or the film is actually about. Do you think this book was titled properly? Because I don't. <laughs> I think this book's title is not an appropriate title for this book. Well, I think Karis is the exorcist of the title. Because he's the one who actually succeeds. And he is one of the two main characters in the book. So I think that was fine. No. I disagree. Yes, he was the exorcist for about 30 seconds and then died. Um, yeah, but he's the one who succeeded. I mean, he he saved Reagan, but he did kind of let the demon loose like out into the world again, right? We don't know where that demon is now. Well, seeing as how the demon was apparently one that uh, Marin had encountered before, it was already loose in the world and could go when it wanted to. So he essentially meant stopped it from from killing reagan which is a big change because in the book reagan's life was actually in danger oh yes and in the movie she was like being tormented sure but there was no like 
okay, look, this thing is keeping her from sleeping and her heart rate is going. Like there's a random cardiologist that shows up at one point during the exorcism. And he's like, yo guys, like she's going to die in like the next day, unless she, you know, it gets fixed. So like her, she was in a lot more actual peril in the book. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I do think that I, I think the book and the film are appropriately titled because I do think the exorcist isn't Marin, it's Karis. And the exorcism is the climax of the story. It's what the entire story builds to. Yeah, I know. But I but he he but, he was a a reluctant participant in the exorcism and then he barely was an exorcist at all. Another thing that I think about with this is I think that Father Karras and Father Marin parallel each other in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. Marin starts in a secular place, even though he has not lost his faith and he is still a priest. He starts working as an archaeologist in the, both the film and the book, which, okay, so little geeky point for me. I'm an archaeologist. I am so tired of people assuming that archaeologists deal with dinosaurs uh, because that's paleontology, not archaeology. <laughs> and I've talked to paleontologists and asked them if the people confuse them for archaeologists. And every paleontologist I've ever met has said, no, everybody knows what a paleontologist is when we tell them. They never think we're archaeologists. But in the book, The Exorcist, Marin is often referred to as a Jesuit paleontologist. Paleontologists do not dig up temples. That's archaeology. I mean, maybe they maybe they just dig up whatever the church says. Yeah, back in the 70s when everyone was on drugs. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but, you know, he starts in a secular place, whereas uh, Karis is in a religious place, but is having a crisis of faith. Mm-hmm. At the end of the book, Marin knows he's going to die. It's very, they make it very clear. And also in the film, I think it's made relatively clear, but in the book, it's crystal clear. He knows he's going to die. There's no question. Karis doesn't know that either he or Marin is going to die as a result of this. But then when Marin dies during the exorcism, Karis takes it on himself to take in the demon and then kill himself to defeat the demon. Therefore, both of these men end up sacrificing themselves to save uh, Reagan. You know, Marin the Exorcist dies during the exorcism, but it happens off screen, off book. We don't see it happen. He's just dead. And we know he had a heart problem and he was hella old. And they talked about the fact that he was super old earlier. Okay. So, of course, yes, this could have been the demon killed him or scared him enough but like he was so unflappable and then he just died it was stupidly anticlimactic for me like what okay and then i'd agree with you on that yeah karis sees that he's dead and karis gets pissed like he's mad at this demon like before he's been afraid now he's mad because Marin's dead and he's like alone and whatever and so then he challenges the, the demon he's like what you can like win on little girls but you you know try why don't you come pick on someone your own size demon yeah you know basically okay which is not a very like well thought out thing this is not a man who's like gonna logic this demon he's just basically taunting it then the demon goes into him and then he kills himself and because remember the original version that I read, we don't get to see the fight. Eventually I read the version where we do get to see the fight and we see the fight in the movie with the added fun of watching him try to beat up the little girl, which is traumatic. But okay. I had to wonder like Reagan was possessed and couldn't control what was happening to her body and couldn't control the demon and was scared. And Karis gets possessed and then is able 
to commit suicide. I had to sit and wonder how it was that Karis was able to commit his suicide, was able to control his body in, in that way. And the only thing I could think of was that he knew it was happening and he wasn't as afraid of the demon where when Reagan was first possessed, obviously she had no idea what's going on. In fact, the scary, one of the saddest worst parts of both book and movie is her saying to her mom, what's wrong with me? And like Chris not having an answer. And if you've ever had a child or someone you care about who's injured, who's like, what's wrong? You know, like that's really awful. So there's that element, but she didn't know what was happening. She had no way to fight. She didn't have a religious background. Karis knows what's going on, has opened the door intentionally, as opposed to Reagan accidentally opening the door, whatever, by playing with a Ouija board, apparently. And so that's why he can now like control his body for just long enough to to kill his body, to to take out the demon. And I just thought, but like he had no guarantee the demon wasn't just gonna like float right back up and go back back into Reagan. Like what very frustrating. Very right. frustrating. So- in the book, Karis asks Marin, what's to stop the demon from going back into her once we get it out? And Marin's answer is, I don't know, but it never seems to happen. Yeah, that, that's so good. So he yeah. at least walks in with that knowledge. Okay, so this is where I get into a little bit of what I know about the author. Okay. I don't know what his politics are. So when I use this term, I don't mean it necessarily in the political sense. He was a conservative Catholic. Um, I've heard, though I don't know if it's true, that he was opposed to the Vatican II reforms. And he, you know, towards the end of his life, actually filed a petition with the uh, Catholic Church to have Georgetown's status as a Catholic institution revoked because he felt that it had become too secular. And throughout his life, he had a number of different events that essentially showed that he was a very theologically conservative Catholic. So my thinking is that Karis knew he could control this because he had gotten his faith back. God was with him. God is more powerful than the demon. He's becoming a vessel to be rid of the demon, just as, you know, in the Bible, when uh, Jesus exercises the demon's legion and puts them into pigs that go kill themselves, Mm -hmm. that it's a very similar thing where, you know, the power of God is what's uh, allowed the movement of the demon and him killing himself is not a sin because it's what is a good thing to do within this particular religious worldview in order to get rid of a greater evil. Right. It is interesting to me that in order to really believe in God, first you have to see the devil. <laughs> like Karis is not believing because of his faith. His crisis of faith is legit. And then he sees supernatural events i'm sorry i know i'm cynical and kind of bitchy at this moment but like it's a lot easier to believe in magic when something magical is happening to you without explanation it's a lot harder to have faith without any kind of proof so yeah okay his faith is restored because he got a big old sign i it just mm. I, but yes, definitely a conservative book, definitely a book that was about how we need more faith and, you know, science can't solve you and faith is good. And, and, you know, it's, it's all God and religion is the thing that's going to save you. Definitely yeah. not, not even well, subtly here. <laughs> well, I, I think the, the book definitely said half faith above knowledge and above science and all that. I don't think the book was as strongly anti-science as honestly I think the movie was. 
because in the book there was definitely the idea that these people are genuinely trying they genuinely have some knowledge they've become stumped but normally they don't become stumped whereas in the movie all the psychiatrists and doctors are just totally useless Oh, I mean, and they are in the book, too. It's like, what's causing this bed to shake? Well, the convulsions. No, the bed was literally floating in the air. Oh, you know, convulsions. Well, what's wrong with my daughter? Oh, hysteria. No, man, like, there's some serious stuff going on. No, hysteria. Like, it's so condescending and and frustrating. And the reason why, and I read a thing from Blatty talking about why he had so much medical stuff in the book was because he wanted it to be ambiguous whether or not there really was a demon until the end. Well, he failed at the ambiguity. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> but like, that's why there's so many doctors and so many medical things and why we get Damien's research and like, segments of his research papers that he's reading and then there's like a medium who also has this witchcraft book which they totally left out of the film thank goodness because it was another just randomness that kept the book going forever and ever um like so he tried to be ambiguous but he obviously had a vested interest in proving that faith is what's gonna you know at some point you know doctors don't have the answers but god does that's what's going on here mm -hmm. and i think that chris's story works better in the book because she sacrifices everything in the book she was about to become a director of a film which is still a more male dominated field mm -hmm. and so she was going to let her career was taking off she was you know getting this pr big promotion this chance to prove herself and she had to give that up because she had to take care of her daughter I, again i can't help but read that as you know this uppity woman getting smacked down and punished for being an uppity woman which but i think was the intention chris's sacrifice was more in the book so which made her more interesting she was also less yeah. shrill in the book she didn't curse as much in the book <laughs> they didn't make as big of a deal of her being an atheist i mean they brought it up but it wasn't as as hitting over the head as much and then again like we've talked about the ending where she keeps the medallion or doesn't which is about symbolically taking the faith or not taking the faith you know and on on the topic of chris and the uppity woman so the story that inspired this it was a teenage boy and specifically a post-pubescent teenage boy whereas in the book and the film it's a girl who's beginning to go through puberty mm -hmm. and you know one of the things that the demon routinely does in both the book and film is essentially uh, you can look at it two ways. Either the demon masturbates using her body or the demon sexually assaults her. I think the demon sexually assaults yeah. her. Yeah. It, 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 and I think that especially there's a sequence in both the film and the book involving a crucifix where I think assault is the appropriate term. It is violent. It, yes. Absolutely. But even outside of that, you know, it's got her demanding that, you know, demanding sex from the doctors who come to visit and from the priests and stuff. And on the one hand, okay, this is the demon doing this to freak people out. And it's taking this innocent child and making her say vulgar things. On the other hand, it's kind of hard not to grasp that it's a girl who's at the age where she's either already started or is just now starting to go through puberty and probably begin to have an interest in sex. And of course, that's demonic. Yes, yes. And and needs to be, you know, at the end, she's returned to her virginal 
innocent state because her memory is wiped clean and she doesn't even remember what has happened and she's back to being the innocent girl but this book is is so anti is it i don't know if misogynistic is the right word or just anti-feminine or just or what but it is i mean we've we've talked about chris getting smacked down by you know because she dares to not be married and to be an atheist and to not have a husband you know all and like to have a career and then to try and to go after you know more male dominated parts of her career and 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 it's very clear that she doesn't have a husband anymore because he was tired of being taken care of by his wife which i'm just gonna go on record kaylee and say that if you ever find a way to become very wealthy i will not divorce you over that you can find us and support us at (laughs) patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast keep my husband in the lifestyle he's become accustomed to i I will be perfectly happy as a kept man i'm just saying (laughs) Okay, so we definitely have that. We have the the other women in this in this book. We have the the secretary who is paired off, and it's all very relieved that she's going to get paired off with this man who has a horse and you know whatever. Okay, we've got the husband and wife of the servants and their daughter, who is the drug addict, you know, person, and it's like maybe dead, maybe better off dead, like all of that kind of stuff. The punishment of women is extreme, and we have the mother figure Karis's mother who dies alone because she can't you know there's nowhere for her to go and she's a burden but she's also old but then like there's this guilt and like on and on and on okay and and then we're punishing Reagan like there is a way that you can write a possession story or you know a story where where somebody is traumatized that is not so graphically sexual and violent and and traumatic to her but that's not what is is here. This is a book that is all about punishing women, and it is it was hard to read. Yeah, definitely. I, I remember reading this section where the Reagan is telekinetically assaulted with a crucifix in the book, and after I read that chapter, I remember just walking out, looking at you, and saying, "This book's messed up." Yeah, and it was as I was heading into that scene, I put the book down and like had to I knew because I knew it was coming. And came back to it, you know, a couple days later, because I knew that I had, you know, to get through it. But I will say that the film, it's it's in the film, mm-hmm. but it's not as long as no. in the book. In the book, it is much more graphic. It is much more drawn out. There's words like sensual used during the second half of that assault. And it is deeply disturbing and Mm -hmm. it's supposed to be you know obviously the book is just more graphic in what happens to reagan's body there's a lot more uh defecation see see me trying not to curse there's a lot more defecation there's a lot more poop and and vomit and and spitting and and all of those and blood and you know there's a lot more bodily fluids there's a lot more of reagan's loss of control over her body and the movie definitely monotonous in the book it does it gets almost repetitive what is that phrase like when you're just oversaturated overstimulated with a like a trauma fatigue there it is thank you trauma fatigue this book was trauma fatigue right (laughs) definitely and i actually it made the sections where karis was talking to the demon i think stand out in contrast because at that point the demon's like okay i'm not going to try to gross you out i'm just going to start going after you and those sections were actually interesting right whereas the rest of it is just like and she soiled herself again okay right and she says another gross thing and she uses another curse word and then she soils herself and then she uses another curse word on and on and on yeah 
one of the things that I, I will say is that because in the film, all of that gets uh, relegated I, in both film and book, that's all relegated to the latter parts. But in the film, I think we're spared a lot of the just overly gratuitous grossness. I mean, that's not to say that this is not a gross film. It's a very gross film, mm-hmm. but it's not as gratuitous as it was in the book. That said, one thing I noticed as we were watching it, this film was made in the early 70s. It was made for the film stock of the early 70s to be projected on a screen as these were in the early 70s. It was not made to be viewed on a high definition for a television (laughs) set. And I say this, before I get into this, I'm not one of these people who says, oh, well, that had bad special effects, therefore it's terrible. I watched the original Doctor Who. I don't demand great special effects, okay? But when a story is a Attempting to frighten you in large part by either shock or kind of a very visceral disgust, it needs to look realistic. And there were points in the film where, because we were watching it on a high definition screen, like you could see the tubes through which the pea soup or whatever it was was being funneled, stuff like that. And I, it, it took me out of the film because it suddenly, oh, I'm not seeing this disturbing thing. It's a, oh, I'm seeing how they made this thing look disturbing if you catch the difference. Right. Well, it's very easy to manipulate people to feel certain things like sadness and fear because those are universal things. But once you see the strings of the puppets and you know you're being emotionally manipulated, it makes most people resentful. We don't like being emotionally manipulated or Better yet, we don't like knowing that we're being emotionally manipulated. Sure. The scene of Regan walking backwards like a crab, like with her body all weird and whatever, has is is sometimes in and sometimes not in the versions that you'll find, the theatrical version and the director's cut, because they there were wires and they had to wait till they could re-release it and digitally remove the wires because otherwise it looked silly and it came so early in the film that it it didn't match the rest of the tone. Yeah, so I'm with you. I was fully prepared to be scared because the book was disturbing and I was like, seeing this on the screen is going to be scary, but it wasn't scary. It was just gross. And I didn't, the scariest part to me was the medical interventions that, and that was, that's a real test that they do on. And like, she's in this medical apparatus and they're sticking a needle in her neck and like, she's crying and like, that was awful. And I know part of that's my own baggage of medical stuff. Okay. Yeah. Because I I read a essay on this, which actually called that out as the most disturbing part of the film. And I would agree with that. However, you and I have a daughter who, when she was quite young, had some problems that were eventually resolved through surgery, but it took a lot of pushing to even get the tests run. And one of the times when the test was run, the people doing it did it wrong and caused her a lot of pain. Pain, pain yeah. yes. I actually Trauma. had to hold her down during that. Yeah, I, I, yes, um, it was awful. And, and I know that that yeah. colors our perceptions, but I'm glad to see, because I did read similar articles probably mm-hmm. to you that other people were just as disturbed having not had that experience okay. with their own child. So yeah, it was. And, and I think part of what makes that scary and, and, as horrific as it is, is because medical things are inherently scary because it's always something like, oh gosh, what's going on? And are we going to find an answer? Are we, you know, being put through this thing for a good reason or, or not? Will it help? And these doctors didn't seem to have a freaking clue. They're like, well, it could be this. Let's test and find out. Oh, it's not that. Let's test again because maybe, we, you know, so like you don't have a lot of faith in the medical things, anyways. But the other thing is that most of us 
most of us are not going to get possessed. We don't know somebody who's been possessed. Exorcisms and possessions are not a run-of-the-mill thing, but having a scary medical thing that you don't know or having to go in for any kind of medical test that you know could potentially involves needles, people are more afraid of needles than demons, right? I would I would guess because they're more in our lives. So that's a scarier thing. I'm way more scared of getting mugged than I am of an angel coming down and smiting me because one of those things is bound, you know, is statistically more probable. I just, you know, so I think that that's a, a definite part of it. Well, and frankly, I think that was one of the big problems with most major cities in the seventies is that there are way too many angels coming down and smiting people. <laughs> <laughs> or just randomly possessing people, yeah. you know, that too. Um, another thing about the book, though, being more more gruesome is that the whole Denning, that the director, Denning, who died, his head being turned around mm -hmm. in the book, we're, we're told about that in, in a lot more detail when the detective goes to the morgue and stuff. In the, in the movie, he's just like, oh, let me just tell you this, but we don't actually see it. Mm -hmm. We save the head turning around business for when Regan does it. And because it's at the end of a scene with this violent, sexual assault crucifix thing it it, it i'm not going to say it gets overshadowed but like that whole scene is and th th that's also the scene where she's pushing her mother's face into her genitals and she's screaming obscenities and then chris is getting thrown across the room and then there's like furniture flying like there's a lot happening in that scene and so i think that it almost doesn't have as the same kind of resonance mm -hmm. do you know what i mean also, it looks fake because if your neck really did that, your neck would be broken and there would be no coming back from that. So yeah. Reagan's dead now, except that she's not. So that obviously didn't quite happen. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't well, work. And, it didn't work and, and the film does play a little bit with, you know, are people actually seeing this or is the demon making them see things that aren't really there? For example, uh, Father Karras walks in at one point and sees his mother sitting, looking confused on Reagan's bed. Mm -hmm. And then a moment later, it's clearly Ray possessed Reagan again. You know, there are various points where it seems like they're trying to play with the idea that maybe things that we're seeing aren't really happening. They're just what the demon wants us to see. They also go out of their way to tell us that telepathy is a totally normal scientific thing. Right, so yeah, let's get into this book. That's not in the film, but in the book. The book is so peak 1970. Um, it's like, you know, a couple bell bottoms shy of a Brady Bunch reunion. Um, so, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Sorry. <laughs> Your mother sucks Marsha's in hell. Um, oh, God. So in the 1970s, there were genuinely scientists who were looking to study things like ESP and telepathy. That did happen. It was never a mainstream accepted thing in science or medicine. Throughout the book, we're told, oh, well, yes, as modern psychiatrists and neurologists, we know that sometimes telepathy and ESP happen. All right, they flat out say that. No, nobody ever was convinced of that. It was something that some people were studying. Part of that was the 60s and 70s occult uh, revival. Part of that was the fact that the military, for example, was trying to experiment with these things. I read the book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, for a really great discussion of that. But then you also have things like... Like at one point, both the film and the book, Regan, while possessed, speaks backwards. And when you play the tape forwards, you can hear the message.
message. Well, this is also a point where a lot of religious conservatives were becoming convinced that rock bands were using backmasking to hide demonic messages and albums. So again, peak 1970s, right? Yep. And then you've got, I think this happened once or twice in the film, but in the book, multiple times, people bring up that it's just sort of an accepted thing that there's these secret satanic cults all throughout the country engaging in all sorts of activities. Now, I should say at this point in time, the Church of Satan based in San Francisco was rising. That is a real organization. It's actually an atheistic organization. They don't believe in Satan or in God. It's all symbolic to them. But yes, that was occurring. You also had things like the cults of personality, like the one built up around Charles Manson. This was the time where you had the Jonestown massacre. So people were becoming very concerned about uh, religious and occult brainwashing, things of that sort. But they were talking about it as if it was just a given thing that in large cities, there's satanic cults that are getting up to no good and holding black masses and doing all of this stuff that honestly was never happening. Yep. So the book is very much a product of the late 60s and early 70s. I, I, I know we both got a pretty good laugh out of the constant, well, everybody knows that ESP can occur. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. nobody knows that. <laughs> There's a few other things I'd like to actually talk about real quick about the film. Sure. Mm -hmm. One of the first is that the opening to the film doesn't make sense in context of the film. In the book, it makes sense because you understand that Father Marin is understanding that a demon has been released. It's a demon he's faced before and he's going to have to face it again. And of course, while I was reading the book, I kept hearing Irving Finkel, who wrote the book, The First Ghosts, in my head going on about how this is utter slander against Pazuzu because yes, Pazuzu is a demon that does bring sickness, but Pazuzu also protects mothers and children from Lamashtu, which is another demon. So really, you shouldn't be blaming this uh, possession on Pazuzu. Yeah. But in, in the book, it makes sense why this is happening. In the film, you get Father Marin walking through the Egypt part of Raiders of the Lost Ark for 10 minutes for no apparent reason. Uh, it's beautifully shot. It looks good. There's a lot of stuff about those sequences that I actually genuinely like, but it just doesn't really serve a purpose in the film. So that that was something that hit me. But then throughout the film, they had like these little subtle nods to Mesopotamian things. The bird statue that um, Reagan makes for her mother in the book, we're just told it's a bird. In the film, the outline of the bird looks like the statue of Pazuzu that Father Marin sees. I thought that was interesting. Reagan has drawn pictures of lions with wings, which is a common element in um, Mesopotamian art, and it's often found in archaeological sites. So there's just a lot of stuff like that that got dropped in. And to be fair, in the book, there's a little bit of that. Uh, Pazuzu is the demon of the southwest wind. At various points when something's happening, a wind blows out of the south. So yeah, I just, I like those little touches. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, I think what the movie gets right yeah. is a lot of the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that I thought was kind of an interesting change is in the book, Reagan's father does try to contact her on her birthday, but we find out about that later. And apparently Reagan being possessed tells him off. In the film, he doesn't call Reagan at all. 
And at one point, Chris is on the phone trying to get a hold of him, and she is just cursing out the operator. She is losing her ever-loving brain. Like right. she, she's so much more shrill and easily mm-hmm. pissed off in the movie. But what's really important about that scene is throughout the scene, the camera is panning backwards, and then finally mm-hmm. at the very end, we see that Reagan is hiding behind a door and hears this. And understands that her father is not trying to talk to her on her birthday. And so you get a lot of little touches like this in the film that just simply weren't there in the book. But I do think helped with some of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. Are you ready to talk about some of the, the way that this has affected folklore? Oh, and, uh, oh yes, I am. So I, I know, obviously, anytime that there's accidents on set or whatever, especially if it's a horror film or it gets blamed and like, oh, you know, the set is cursed. And I know at this one, they asked a priest to actually come and do an exorcism on the set and nobody would do that. But a priest did come and bless the set, which seemed to make people feel better. I don't know. Cough, cough, placebo. Also, you know, like some some people got hurt. Some people died around the same time as filming because, you know, those things never happen naturally. I've got a, <laughs> I've got a whole list here, actually. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. So when I was a kid, I would often hear that this movie was cursed. This is like a common subject of talk on the playground was this film was cursed. Also, we heard the same thing about Poltergeist. Mm -hmm. And anytime somebody brought up either Poltergeist or The Exorcist, somebody else would bring up the other. So this is a huge part of the folklore of the 70s and 80s, which is interesting because this is allegedly based on, or not based, but inspired by a true event that really only became well known in the 90s because of the success and the continuing importance of the film, The Exorcist. Right. So the first event, though, that's credited to the film being in some way cursed is that at 2.30 a.m. one Sunday morning, a fire broke out on the set that was the McNeil house in the film. It was the result of a bad electric circuit. It shut down filming for six weeks and they had to rebuild the set. And then as soon as they had the new set built, a sprinkler system broke down, which caused more delays. When Max von Sydow who plays Father Marin, touched down in New York to film his first scenes. Literally at the time that his plane was touching down, his brother died unexpectedly in Sweden. Seidau himself became very ill during filming. Jack McGowan, who played Burke Dennings, died one week after his character was killed by the demon in the movie. That, that is, I'm assuming they mean one week after he filmed his death scene, as opposed to Yes. I, I'm not sure well, what he, else that means. He he died of uh he had he was sick. Yeah, there was like a he died of I I want to say alcohol poisoning, but I don't have the thing in front of me now. But he had some actual sickness that he died of. Right. Yeah. Jason Miller, who played Father Karras, his son was hit by a motorcyclist on a beach, and of course the stories say the motorcyclist appeared out of nowhere, and his son almost died but did survive ellen burston who played chris she wrenched her back badly during one scene when she was slapped by uh, the possessed girl uh, and that was due to the stunt going badly and that led to more delays in filming as she was laid up one of the carpenters who worked on the set accidentally cut off his thumb and a lighting technician lost his toe <laughs> the demon's coming after you one little teeny tiny appendage at a time you know it, it reminds me of when i was in high school and i knew people in one of the local evangelical churches who every time like 
I, I remember one time they lost a screwdriver while working on props for a church play and they became convinced it was because Satan was trying to stop them from putting on the play. Okay, so the originally they were supposed to film in Iraq in the spring, which is relatively cool. It got delayed and they had to do it in July where temperatures were frequently 130 degrees or higher. Most of the crew at various times were unable to work either due to dysentery or heat related illness. Uh, the statue that they were using for Pazuzu in that scene was sent to Hong Kong, and that caused more delays. Linda Blair's grandfather died. The assistant cameraman's baby died. The man who refrigerated the set died. It, it just kind of goes on. Um, okay, but did you read about the actual serial killer who worked on this movie? No. Oh God. <laughs> oh wow. I totally thought you were gonna. You were gonna. Okay, hold on. Let me let me pull it up because it's it's good. Okay, so you know in the scene where they're doing the um the medical testing, uh-huh. right? Okay. Well, the guy Paul Batesman, who played an X-ray technician, or is an X-ray technician, he played one of the radiologists present during during that the medical scene. Okay. He was convicted of murdering film critic Addison Verrill. He admitted to killing this film critic, right? He killed him. He went to jail. Then he started bragging about all the other people that he killed. And so he's still the prime suspect as the in the bag murders. They were carried out from 1977 to 1978, which six male victims were mutilated and dismembered. Their remains were wrapped in black plastic bags and dumped in the Hudson River. The grisly fragments washed up on the New Jersey shore. Others came to ground near the World Trade Center. He bragged about them and was obviously the prime suspect, but they could never actually get enough evidence i guess they never actually charged him for that he got released from prison in the early 2000s for the other murder and those murders the bag murders were the inspiration for a film called cruising which starred al pacino and was directed by william friedkins wow the same guy who directed this okay so weirdly i know exactly which actor you're referring to because I remember when we were watching that scene, I kept thinking, wow, that guy looks a lot like my dad did in the late 70s. Wait, what? <laughs> wait, hold on. But your dad is not the bag No, my dad, my dad is not the bag murderer. <laughs> my dad was in uh, Korea with the army when all of that was <laughs> happening. <laughs> yeah. So... I mean, I feel like so many things, there's always somebody getting hurt or injured or whatever. And to blame it on a, a movie seems rather silly to me. But yeah. um, I, some of some of the stuff does seem at the very least weird that you'd have a concentration of it. But at the same time, random distribution doesn't mean uniform distribution. It means you get clumps. Oh. And some of these things like the carpenter and the electrician getting injured, those are known common hazards of those occupations. Well, or like, okay, there's a fire on set, so then they rebuild the set, and then there's a problem with the sprinklers. Like, okay, so obviously, like, <laughs> right? Or you know, getting injured during a stunt. Well, that's that's that a known risk for doing stunts. Yeah, yeah. Her her back is still messed up. Mm. Yeah, for for years and years. I recognized her. I know you don't watch Law and Order, but the way that I watch Law and Order, but she is Detective Stabler's mother on Law and Order, yeah. organized crime. Yep. 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 At any rate, this idea that the film was cursed led to a number of mostly evangelical clergy, but even some Catholics and other groups claiming that 
demons had actually infested the film stock. Right. And although a lot of Catholics were very pro this movie, oh, yeah. because this movie is very pro Catholic. It, 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 it absolutely <laughs> is. And it's interesting that we think of exorcism as being primarily a Catholic thing, in large part because of this movie, when the Catholic Church has had rites of exorcism for hundreds of years. That's nothing new. But in more recent centuries, it has been Protestant sects, and especially what we would now call uh, charismatic and Pentecostal sects, who are far more likely to engage in exorcist rituals, especially in the U.S. But because of the success of this film, even though Catholics are far less likely to actually do an exorcism than many other denominations, we think of exorcism as being a Catholic thing, primarily. So. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that the actual story of Ronald Hunkler, big chunks of it have often been replaced with elements of the film, uh, specifically a lot of the things that are said to have happened while he was allegedly possessed. People will often just substitute the events of the film, even though what the priest or exorcist diary actually says happened to him is much more low key. But the other thing that I think is worth noting is after this film, the Catholic Church began to get a rise in demands for exorcisms, in large part because of the success of the film and because it put this idea into people's minds. So exorcism went from being this thing that the Catholic Church had kind of, they still did, but it was much, not, wasn't something they talked much about. And with the Vatican II reforms, they were really trying to put it more into the background. And then this film comes out and suddenly the Catholic Church is known in large part for being, you know, the Church of Exorcisms. The other thing that I just want to mention that ties into folklore is throughout the book, they mention a book called The Roman Ritual. And I've known many people who, after reading this book, think that the Roman ritual is this, you know, astounding magical tome that's held by the Catholic Church and kept quiet. It's not. It's literally a shop manual for priests. It's what they use for the majority of the rituals that the priest is called upon to do. You can buy a copy from Amazon if you want. It's nothing secret. Uh, Catholic Church doesn't try to keep it hidden. But the idea that there's this book called the Roman Ritual that the Catholics keep hidden became a part of uh, some folklore as well, which I just find kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. So I want to hear your best moments from either book or movie or both. Your worst moments, what sticks with you, and then whether it was worth your time. Okay. The best moment from the book I'm going to give two, the creepiest moment and the best moment. Okay. I think the best moment is when Father Karras sits down to talk with Reagan for the first time, and clearly he and the demon are trying to feel each other out. I just thought that portion of the book was really fascinating. I enjoyed reading it. The other moment, though, is the creepiest, which is I thought the crab walk down the stairs in the film looked silly. I, I thought it was unintentionally comical. In the book, I actually thought it was astoundingly creepy. Well, in the book, she's following Sharon around. And Sharon like doesn't a... know it. Yeah. 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 And, and in the book, it was extremely effective. In the film, I thought it looked silly. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that's, I think, the best for the uh, book. For the film... I actually think that the first time that Father Karras and the demon speak in the film is one of the best scenes. I especially like him asking, well, why don't you just make the restraints disappear? And the demon's response is, that would just be a vulgar display of power. And you're kind of like, okay, is that just a cop-out? 
or is the demon basically saying, look, I've got standards. And I just, I, I, <laughs> I thought that was great. It was well-performed. It was well-written. I thought that was wonderful. The Iraq segments in the beginning of the film do not contribute anything to the narrative, but they are beautifully filmed and well done. And I enjoyed watching them. So that's my, that's the best for the film and the book for me. How about for you? Okay. So I think I'm going to cop out here. I don't have a best part. I didn't like this book. <laughs> I would say maybe the, the relationship between Chris and Reagan being very sweet at the beginning was nice. Um, that was cool. And, and great. It was, it was fun to see the 1970s fashion in the movie. <laughs> I thought the set designs of the movie was really cool. Like the Karis's mother's apartment in New York, I thought was really well done. And I thought that the, the movie did a good job of creating a sense of atmosphere, you know, just through the set design and, and stuff. I agree. Sure. Yeah. So those, I guess, would be the best for the film. I, the book, I don't, I don't know. There's not, there, I didn't really enjoy much of like, any of this of this book the book was was a no bleh for me which is why i got rid of my original copy so yeah there's that the worst i'll just jump right into that the worst part of the film for me was the medical interventions on the girl because it i wasn't expecting it because it was so downplayed in the book i was like gearing up to see the 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 sexual trauma and the you know the grossness and the pea soup i was like all prepared for that and, and then, then the medical stuff came out of left field and i was like oh my god that's so much more graphic than it was described in the book completely and so it really like that was shocking and and, and unnerving for me so that was the worst in the film. And the worst part of the book was the fact that in the version that I read, we don't see the battle between the priest and the demon. And then then I freaking gaslit myself for weeks because we read this book and I was like, gosh, I remember it differently. And then I had to like wonder if I had just forgotten or if I had just made up this thing in my head and couldn't find a... it wasn't until today literally this afternoon i was able to get a hold of and actually read that the original book you know sections of it and feel very vindicated that i was right i did remember it properly that it was very different and so that made me feel better but it was it seriously the worst part of the book for me was the end when it was just so off screen what was going on and it just felt like such a, a downer letdown of an ending your mileage will vary, obviously. But yeah, those are my worst. So what's your worst? I, I think that without question, the worst for me was the demon sexually assaulting Reagan. I mean, that was just disturbing in so many ways. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it was intended to be disturbing. So I guess good job, William Peter Blatty. You, you did what you set out to do. But yeah, it was extremely unpleasant to read. It, yeah, it wasn't nearly as graphic in the film, but still, that like me, I would agree that the um, medical stuff in the film was pretty unnerving too. Although in that case, I think that um, I don't know. I guess it didn't bother me as much. How do I put this? I didn't like it, but it was also a thing of where, like, okay, I'm not supposed to like this. I, I'm feeling the right. way this is supposed to make me feel, which I guess is the same thing with the other stuff I said is the worst. So maybe, I don't know, maybe I should just be consistent and say, yeah, that was bad. They, they were both bad. Yeah. They were both really, really bad. I Yeah. And in in reality, sexual assault obviously trumps a medical procedure in terms of 
being bad right um mm. it just it to me it felt so gratuitous that yes it was it was horrifying but having lived through the book explanation where it was gratuitous and violent and then perverted and unsavory so it just made me feel gross because he was trying so hard to like like I said before the word sensual was used and it is just like okay at that point I was like you are literally just going down a list of things that you know will bother the reader and so now you're being edgy to be edgy and so it not only takes me out of it a little bit, but it makes it easier for me to detach from you because I know you're trying to push my buttons, you know. William Peter so. Blatty, 1970s edge lord. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Okay, so I mean, I guess that's kind of like what'll stick with you, really. I think what will well, go ahead, you go first. What will what will stick with you from this book, movie, podcast experience of ours, reading and and the research into the original story? And the thing that really sticks with me, if you ask me about all of that together, is the way that a story that in of itself is pretty interesting, which is the exorcism of Ronald Hunkler became something so completely different than what it actually was simply because it served as the seed for a novel that actually had very little to do with the actual events and which the author of the novel was very clear had very little to do with the actual events. But that novel and the film based on it would come to have a bigger footprint than the allegedly true events. I find that fascinating and I find it fascinating that all of this became part of the folklore surrounding demons and exorcism almost instantly to the point that while there'd always been people since the invention of the Ouija board who thought that it was evil, it was generally treated as something of a joke until after the exorcist came out, at which point stories of the evils of Ouija boards and how they lead to possessions became very common throughout the U.S. So Mm -hmm. that's what's going to stick with me is the way that a piece of pop culture can deeply influence how large portions of the population view the world. What will stick with me from this this whole book movie experience, I, a little bit of my vindication that I shouldn't gaslight myself, that I was correct in, in most of my memory. I didn't have it exactly right of what had happened at the end, but I knew that what I was reading was not what I had read before. And I, I do feel really much better about that whole situation now. And also, I think just having now watched the movie and read the book i feel like i can actually be a little bit more part of the pop culture discussion of Mm -hmm. it because before i was always like oh yeah that but i hadn't seen it in fact when i was probably nine or ten no eight or nine i don't know i was sleeping over at my cousin's aunt's and uncle's house so they weren't my aunt and uncle they're my cousin's aunt and uncle or something anyways we were sleeping on the living room floor and we'd fallen asleep and then we woke i woke up later and they were watching a movie and i remember aunt marie saying put your head down close your eyes this is a scary movie and i remember some of the the audio of that because obviously i had my head down and i didn't have my glasses on and the whole thing and i always thought it was the exorcist and if people said have you ever seen the exorcist i would say oh i listened to about 10 minutes of it once at you know while sleeping on somebody's living room floor and it was really scary having now watched this movie it was totally not the exorcist i have no idea what movie that was some creepy kid at the bottom of a staircase is the only image that i have in my head from when i picked my head up and then there's very specific music and like sounds that i but i have no idea so 
there you go. I, I was wrong in one way and right in the other way. And I have now done this. I've read this book now twice. I've read portions of it more than more than twice. I don't ever want to read it again. We'll never watch the movie again. And I don't think you could pay me to watch any of the sequels. But I mean, you know, yo, we have a Patreon and Matthew really wants to be held in a lifestyle he's become accustomed to. So if you all want to donate to the Patreon, maybe I'll suffer. No, but please don't. <laughs> Please support us on Patreon, but please don't make your support um, contingent on me subjecting myself to more horror. Okay. To, to be clear, this is not the lifestyle that I've become accustomed to. This is the lifestyle oh. I'd like to become accustomed oh, to. Oh, <laughs> fair, fair, fair. Okay. So we've kind of already answered it, but Matthew, uh, was the book worth your time? Was the movie worth your time? And if somebody had, is coming to them fresh, which one would you recommend? Either, neither, or both? What? What's going on? If somebody is a fan of horror or is really interested in the folklore surrounding possession and exorcisms, then they should read the book and watch the movie both. If you don't like horror, don't read the book or watch the movie. I think that the book was... I, this. Uh, this is admittedly a low bar, but compared to the other books we've done for our crossovers, The Mothman Prophecy and Amityville Horror, this book was at least competently written. You can argue about whether or not it was well-written, but it was at least competently written, whereas those ones were not. Yeah, agree. The film, by contrast, is extremely well-made. Whether you like it or not, it is a very well-made film, and it is uh, not surprising that it was nominated for Best Picture. It, one other thing I'll say so many elements of this film have seeped their way into general pop culture. You know, the old priest and the young priest, the head turning around, the pea soup being spit out, you know, your mother sucks appendages in hell, that sort of stuff. So much of that has become part of our pop culture that I think this film is going to be a lot less scary to a modern audience than it would have been in the 70s because we've, a, a lot of the things that were shocking in this film are punchlines to jokes now yeah so i i would agree i think that unless you're a big horror aficionado then the, you don't need to bother with the book because it is basically the same story on film and it i think that the film does a good job of trimming a lot of unnecessary fat out of the the book story uh, i agree with you that the film was well done, well made. I don't know if it, for me, was the scariest movie I've ever seen, but I no. could understand why in 1973, it was probably one of the scariest things that a lot of people had seen. And I and I think that it is one of those things that probably, you know, if you can at all stomach it, it's worth watching just so that you can be exposed to the quote unquote scariest film, whatever, you know, and you can see the the genesis of a lot of things that are common, not only in horror, but in other supernatural elements shows you know pop culture references etc seeing the beginning of stuff like that is is interesting you know there's a reason why stuff holds up even if it doesn't age particularly well you can look at it and be like okay this is the thing that started this trend so that's historically important and interesting also, I mean, the fashion, you guys, I mean, seriously, these pajamas that Chris rocked were something else. So the, the film was peak 70s in a very different way than the book was peak 70s. The book was peak That's 70s true. in terms of concepts. The film was peak 70s in fashion. Yeah. And I would agree with you that of the three crossovers that we've done, which is Lamity Horror. Amityville Horror. Amityville Horror. <laughs> Word I can't say. Um, and the Mothman prophecies. This movie was scarier than those, and uh it was 
the book was better written. So mm-hmm. we didn't have chapstick <laughs> in this book. Like there there is no the way to say the word chapstick. There's there really yeah, is. But but I will say that if you're coming to this movie expecting it to be the scariest film ever made, which is what a lot of people will genuinely say, it probably would have been in the 70s. Uh, and I don't say mm-hmm. this as a well, you know, we're more toughened to these things or desensitized now than we were in the 70s. I mean, we are yeah, yeah. I, you, you can make some arguments either way but what i will say is that you know the film the exorcist is so permeated pop culture that you're going to frequently know what's about to happen before it happens simply be by virtue of living in the english-speaking world since 1973 yeah so that takes a lot of the edge off indeed yep because again fear of the unknown is the worst fear of all which is an element of the story what's wrong with reagan and how can it be fixed what is this unknown thing that has taken over her and uh apparently the answer is pray and faith in god and everything will be fine okay so that is the end of that thank you so much matthew can you tell my pages and popcorn people about where we can find about ghost anthropology and uh, then then I will tell your ghost anthropology people where you can find pages and popcorn. How about that? Certainly. If you're interested in more discussion of supernatural folklore, go to kmmamedia.com forward slash ghost and you will find all of the episodes and transcripts of all of the episodes that were pre-written. And you'll get to hear my dulcet tones drone on about ghost stories. Yes. And why they matter and what's interesting about them and how folklore permeates and kind of like folklore and ghost stories and stuff with an anthropological vent. It's very interesting. I'm a little bit biased, but yes, it's very cool. And you have what, almost like 45 episodes, 47, 49 episodes. You're coming up to 50. So there's a lot Mm -hmm. of back catalog for you. There is. Okay, and for you ghost anthropology people, if you don't already know, you can find out more about Pages and Popcorn Podcast, which is the podcast where we talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material over at, again, kmmamedia.com. There's a Pages and Popcorn link right at the top and further down the page as well. And you can see my back catalog. We've got 70 episodes plus a bunch of supplementals and other such things, all sorts of movies and books represented there and more coming we took a big hiatus but we're back now that's exciting already recorded another episode that'll be dropping in a couple weeks which is also another horror movie (laughs) so if you enjoyed hearing me feel slightly uncomfortable with gore and horror well boy do i have a show for you in two weeks so that's that's about it thank you so much and again you can support either the of these shows uh we both have patreons also there's the buy us a coffee one-time donation button but really the most help you could be is if you rate and review the shows on apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to your podcast and please like and share our social media pages there's facebook pages for both of these and kmma media is on instagram and uh tell your friends and if you have not already subscribed, subscribe. Go back to October of uh, 2020 and listen to the Amityville one where you can hear Kalia try to pronounce Amityville multiple times. Yes, we did that one. And then we did Mothman Prophecies in 2021. Where you can hear us make fun of people trying to say chapstick and make it sound <laughs> creepy. Yes, exactly. And who knows what the future holds for next year on Halloween. Thank you.